Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of John, the second chapter, where we were last week. We looked at the first 12 verses of chapter 2. We're going to look this morning at verses 13 through 22. As Jesus continues His ministry, John has introduced us to the Lord Jesus Christ, told us who Jesus is, that He is the Word that was with God and is God. And now He begins to tell us of the ministry that Jesus had. And so if you would please give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. For the Word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The Word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask this morning that you would open up your word to us. That we would see the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would see him as our sovereign king. As the Lord of the universe. The Lord of the temple. That even as we study your word, we would be reminded of the sufficiency of our Savior. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Have you ever had the experience of thinking you know someone, only to find out later that you didn't really? Even more... That you thought someone was just like you. But then you realized that was only because you simplified who they were. And you wanted to make an analogy to yourself. Now when we do this, it doesn't need to be a conscious effort. No, it could be just an oversimplification of other people as we interact with them. But there is a danger that we can do this with Jesus. There are aspects of Jesus' teaching or his actions that resonate with us. And we tend to overemphasize them. We tend to exclude other accounts in the Gospels because we want Jesus 
to be whom we want him to be. John gives us early here in his gospel two incidents, signs, John will say, that show that there is a breadth to Jesus. He is the one who makes wine from water and gives blessing to his people. But he is also the one who comes into the temple and cleanses it and establishes the worship of the true and living God. Jesus is not who we want him to be. He is who he is. He is the Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah. Last week we saw Jesus as the Lord of creation, blessing his people. This week we see him as the Lord of the temple, particular about the worship of God. And so as we look at our text this morning, I'd like us to see three things. First, what Jesus saw. And then next, what Jesus did. And finally, what Jesus meant by his words and his actions. What Jesus saw, what Jesus did, and what Jesus meant. Let's start then by looking at what Jesus saw. A bit of context as we begin verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. Now remember, in verse 12, Jesus had just left the wedding at Cana, and he went with his mother and his brothers and his disciples to Capernaum for a few days. But now is the time of the Passover, the highest feast of the Jewish year. Jews would travel down to Jerusalem, or rather up to Jerusalem, they would say, because of its height, to celebrate, to offer sacrifices for the Passover, and to pay their annual tax for the temple. Passover occurred in late March or early April, with the date moving much like our Easter does. When we celebrate Christmas, it's always the same day every year, December 25th. But you will note that Easter changes from year to year. Sometimes it's in March, sometimes it's in April. And the reason for that is the celebration of Easter is tied to the way that the Jews celebrated the Passover. It was not for a specific day. It was tied to the lunar month. That is, the, the way that the moon came out at night affected the length of the month. And so with Easter, it is the first Lord's Day after a certain phase of the moon. So it is with the Passover as well. But the Passover commemorated God's bringing Israel out of Egypt. You may recall this. Israel had gone down into Egypt. They were slaves for hundreds of years. And then God sent Moses, the Redeemer, to Pharaoh. You remember the ten plagues. And the last of the plagues, the tenth plague, God sent the angel of death to destroy all of the firstborn in Egypt. From Pharaoh's house down to the animals. The only ones who were spared were the Israelites who had gathered in their homes and partaken of the Passover feast of the Passover lamb, and the blood of the lamb was placed upon the doorpost of the home. And that was how the angel of death knew to pass over that house. That's where we get 
the name for this festival. And so in honor of this, worshipers came to Jerusalem and they would offer sacrifice to God. That was the Old Testament system of worship. They would sacrifice a cow, a heifer, a sheep, a goat, a dove, depending on what sacrifice was being instituted. A whole number of them set forth in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And so they would bring animals to the temple and have them sacrificed. And at this time, Jerusalem would simply swell with pilgrims. It was not a large city by our standards, but pilgrims would come not only from nearby places, but from places as far as Galilee or even Syria or even from Cyprus or other areas, not even on the connected land. They would all come to Jerusalem to celebrate this Passover and to sacrifice. And so some scholars think it was four or five hundred thousand people. Others estimate perhaps as many as two million. So if you can think about it for just a moment in our terms, Katy is a pretty big place. But could you imagine if the entire population of Houston descended on Katy for a week? Now Katy's a big place. But you can't easily fit two million people in Katy. That's what Jerusalem would be like. There's hustle and bustle everywhere. There's crowding. There's jostling. And the center of all of that would have been the temple. That would have been the most crowded area. The most sought after area. And so Jesus obeying the command of God to come to Jerusalem and worship during this high feast and offer sacrifice comes to Jerusalem. Now stop and wait a moment. Think about what I've just said. This is Jesus. He is the Lamb of God. He is the sacrifice for sinners. He is the true Passover Lamb. And yet He so identifies with His people that He comes to celebrate the Passover with them. He had no sin to atone for. He needed no sacrifice, but yet he came to be with his people. Now, John is deliberate in recording the various feasts of the Jews, and the Passover is no exception. John mentions three Passovers, and that's, of course, where we get Jesus' term of ministry of being three years. There is the Passover mentioned here, there is one mentioned in chapter 6, and a third mentioned in chapter 11. And this is important because the other Gospels also mention this incident that John puts before us. Jesus cleansing the temple. But the difference is, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the so-called synoptic Gospels, we call them the synoptic Gospels because they have one viewpoint, which is John, separate from John's viewpoint. The synoptic Gospels all record this happening at the very end of Jesus' ministry. So what does that mean? Well, I think we're left with three options. We know that ancient historians, including the gospel writers, didn't always give the greatest detail to chronological order. They would gather facts together thematically. 
not because they're wrong or they didn't happen, but they would group together a series of events that are all of a similar sort and put them together in an account and then move to another set of events and do that. And so it's possible that John takes this temple cleansing incident and moves it up to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's also possible that the the opposite is true. That the synoptics, for their own thematic reason, take this incident of the cleansing of the temple, which occurred at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and they move it to the end for their own purposes. But I think there's a third possibility. It's that this happened twice in the course of Jesus' ministry. That there were two cleansings of the temple, one at the beginning of his ministry and one at the end of his ministry. It certainly is possible that they would both happen during the Passover. That would be when Jesus was in Jerusalem. That would be when the most people were there, when there was the most money to be made by selling animals and changing money. So it certainly could occur then. There are differences, even important differences, in the account. In fact, it's only the generality that they have in common. Jesus, for example, doesn't talk about raising up the temple in the synoptic accounts. And yet, they reference that statement wrongly in this trial when, they, when Jesus is accused of saying, I will destroy this temple. We know from the text, he rather says that to the Jewish leaders, you destroy this temple. But... In the temple cleansing, here in John's account, it doesn't start a conspiracy against Jesus. In the synoptics, it's sort of the last straw at the end of Jesus' ministry. After he does this, they say, we've had it with this guy. We've got to kill him. We've got to get rid of him. And that actually makes sense if this was the second time he had called them on this. Now... It is not uncommon that this could have happened twice because if you think about it, Jesus would not have let it go in either occasion. And if it's one thing we know from the Gospels, it's that the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, are not exactly quick on the uptake. They don't get corrected by Jesus and say, oh, you know what? He's right. We need to stop doing that. It's wrong. No, what they do is they conspire against Jesus and how to get around Jesus. So just because Jesus cleansed the temple once doesn't mean they wouldn't go right back at it next year. Well, Jesus comes and he sees the hustle and the bustle in verse 14. He sees those who are selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. All of these people, all of them coming to the temple, all of them coming to bring sacrifices and to pay the temple tax. It's a mob scene. And as I thought about this and actually spoke with someone this morning, we have a wonderful example for me to put in your mind. This is the Houston Rodeo times 10. And there's not a section where the oxen and the sheep and all the animals are. You know, if you're like me, there's a section where the animals and the livestock are, and I avoid it to avoid the sounds and the smell, and I go over to where the barbecue is. That's how I like my animals. And so, uh, but if you could imagine 10 times the number of people and all of the animals roaming around, 
And if you could put it this way, imagine that you find the perfect barbecue joint and you want to buy some food at the rodeo and they say to you, I'm sorry, we don't take Apple Pay or credit cards or even American cash. You've got to pay me in British pounds. And you'd say to yourself, well, how do I get British pounds? And they'd say, meet my friend, the exchange agent. He'll sell you British pounds so that you can have money to buy your food. And so that's what's going on here. It's chaotic. Imagine, if you will, a large sporting event that your people are jostling each other to try to get in, to buy food, to buy programs, pushing and shoving. And Jesus sees merchants in all of this. They're in the temple. Now this is important. The temple was actually a temple area. At the very center of the temple area was the Holy of Holies with the holy site around it and the altar. And that was at the center of the temple. And around that was an area that was called the court of the women. And the women would come and they would be in the court of the women. And they would worship. They couldn't go into the Holy of Holies or into the holy place. But they could come into a larger court of women and worship. But then around that was a very large area, like acres large, called the court of the Gentiles. It was a large open area. It was the furthest place that a non-Jew could go. And so if we were to analogize to our church building, which is not a temple, but just to visually get it in your mind, you could imagine that the central area would be here where we are meeting, the meeting place. And then, of course, we have a lobby or a narthex outside and a, a portico shade to give us some shade in the Houston sun where you can stand and talk and, and be together. But the court of the Gentiles would be like Gaston Road. It would be way out there. But the difference is, we have to remember that that court of the Gentiles was where the Gentiles worshipped. It was not just where they gathered. That was the closest they could get to the temple. And so that was where they would go to seek God. To ask questions. To pray. To worship. It was a worship space. It was not a business space. And this is where Jesus sees the animal sellers and the money changers. So there is a combination marketplace and bank going on where the Gentiles would come to pray and seek God. Could you imagine that? If as you were trying to sing or to pray or to listen to me preach, off in the corner was an auctioneer on a megaphone saying, come on, 100, 100, 200, 200, 300, 300. You wouldn't be able to hear yourself think, let alone worship. That's what's going on here. You see, it's not the mere fact of what they're doing. It's where they're doing it. Now, why is this the case? The answer, I think, is simple. Profit. You see, initially these merchants would have set up the area to sell the animals and to exchange the coins across the valley. And they did this because if you were coming down from Galilee or from a, a further place to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice, the last thing you would want to do is bring Bessie the cow with you. It would be a slow journey. And you would realize that you'd have to have a sacrifice that was blameless. 
blemishless, perfect. And so if you're carrying or bringing a sheep or a cow or a heifer or a goat to Jerusalem to be sacrificed, you can't just stick it in the back of the minivan and drive down. You've got to walk it down. And that increases the chance that the animal would come up lame or would cut itself or would get hurt or get attacked by another animal. And then it would be useless as a sacrifice. But there's another thing. They had animal inspectors at the gate of the temple. And when you brought your sacrifice, they would look at it and determine whether it had no blemish or not. And it just so happens that they were in business with the animal sellers. And so you could just imagine how hard it would be to get through the front gate and get a passing grade on your animal. They would say, oh no, his ear is a little torn. No, 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 that hoof isn't right. No, you can't offer up a sacrifice like that. God's law says it has to be blameless. You know what you need? You need someone who can sell you a sheep. Over here's my friend. Now, now granted, his sheep cost ten times the cost of your sheep, but it'll be blemishless. It'll be perfect. Why don't you do that? Why don't you buy this sheep? So this is why they did it. And they would also come and they would have to pay the temple tax. And the temple tax could not be paid in ordinary everyday money. Ordinary everyday money would have been a Greek coin or a Roman coin, which would have images of a false god on it. And you couldn't pay a temple tax with pagan money. And so they had to be exchanged into what are called Tyrian silver coins. They were known for their high silver content, their purity of silver, and they didn't have pagan images on them. Now, the temple tax was one half of a shekel per man, which roughly came down to about two days' wages a year. So just to give you again an idea to think about, if your wages were about $50,000 a year, that's about $500 of tax. And if you didn't have a Tyrian coin, you'd need to exchange into a Tyrian coin. And if you've ever exchanged money at a bank or an airport, you know that there's a cost to it. Well, the cost here was typically about one day's wage, or 50%. You know, it reminds me of, of hearing of a fictional character that he would lend out money and he would say, I'm not so good at math, so the interest rate is 100%. That's easy for me to calculate. That, that, that's kind of what they're doing here. They're getting you. You've got no other option. And that's why they want to be here. This is a windfall. This is the best business week of the year. And like everything in business and real estate, location, location, location matters. The closer you are to the temple precincts, the more money you will make and the more sales you will have. Well, can you imagine trying to read or pray in the middle of all of this? When Jesus sees this, he responds. Jesus knows what the temple is actually for. He knows how important worship is, that there is nothing more important. So he will not stand by and let them make a mockery of the worship of the living God. Now, Jesus, in our text, gets angry. And this is where we need to learn from God's word 
rather than our opinions. You see, we think of Jesus as being meek and mild because he is. And so when we get angry or we see others get angry, we see someone out of control. We see someone lose their cool. We say things we know afterwards we shouldn't have. We treat others callously and less important than ourselves. But that doesn't mean that all anger is sinful. The Bible actually tells us to be angry and do not sin. There are things that we should be angry about. The murders yesterday in Buffalo. Abortion. Injustice. We should be angry about these things. Jesus is angry because he sees sin, not because of his own sin. Be careful if your theology does not have a place for an angry Jesus. Jesus is not whom you want him to be for your comfort. Jesus is God. And he is angry with sin. And not just here. He is coming to judge the world. He comes with wrath for sin. There is only one way to avoid Jesus' righteous anger. And that is to come under the blood of Jesus Christ at the cross. That is the only way that we will be spared the wrath of the judge. Well, we'll look at Jesus' actions in just a moment, but let's look now at what he says, at his motivation for his actions. In verse 16, he says, This is my Father's house. He actually says, that do not make my father's house a house of trade. So what's going on here is Jesus is not primarily concerned with unethical business practices. I think it's clear that there is some price gouging going on here. But that's not what has Jesus worked up. I think it's also true that they are selling in a way in which Jesus would approve of. You see... Jesus knows that people have to buy animals to sacrifice them. He knows they need to pay the temple tax. He instituted the temple tax. So it's not even the fact of the business that Jesus is against here. Rather, he says they should not be preventing and disturbing worship. As the perfect son of God, Jesus knows that worship is the most important part of life. It is what we are made for. And this is also a statement about Jesus' deity. Neither Moses nor David would ever have called the temple or the tabernacle my father's house. They would have talked about the house of the Lord or God's house. But no, here Jesus uses a phrase that he will use again and again. You remember in Luke chapter 2, when Mary and Joseph leave Jerusalem and they lose Jesus. And they have to go find Jesus. And they go back into Jerusalem and he's at the temple. And they say, where are you? Why didn't you come with us? What are you doing? We're worried sick. And he says, didn't you know I needed to be at my father's house? Later on, Jesus will remind us that in my father's house are many rooms. Jesus is staking out here a claim to be the son of God. Make no mistake about it. 
The second thing that we see said about Jesus is in verse 17. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is a scripture from the Psalms, Psalm 69, verse 9. Now, zeal is a fervor. It is a great energy. It is an enthusiasm. It is partisanship in the best possible way. It is partisanship for righteousness and holiness. That's what zeal is. Jesus is telling us that the worship of God is his all-consuming passion. And you know what? That would consume him. Would it not? Jesus would go to the cross and have the wrath of God poured out on himself so that the worship of God would be found throughout all of the world. Jesus was consumed so that you could worship. And this is made clear by the second half of Psalm 69, verse 9, that John doesn't quote. The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. You get that? Jesus is taking your reproach. You have sinned against the living God so that you might worship the Lord. How we worship God reveals what we think about Him. Is worship your passionate desire? Does it consume you? Or is it something that you want to do because you think you have to? And you want it over quickly? No. If it's anything that we have learned in the pandemic, it is that the worship of God, the gathering of God's people together to sing His praise, to offer up prayers, to hear from Him in His Word, is the most important thing in your life. I dare say it is more important than life itself. And so... We are not to dabble with worship or play at worship. Worship is something that we should think about what God wants. Are you tempted to think about what you want in worship? Do you think about your preferences? You know, many Christians do today. That's why churches cater to them. They think that there's only a certain way to pray, or only a certain way to sing, or only a certain way to read God's Word. And that may be your preference. And that may not be sinful. But to place your preference upon God is sinful. Because God has told us how we are to worship Him. What really matters is what God wants. What He prefers what he's commanded about worship. And so Jesus then begins to take action based on his commitment to worship. He takes a bunch of cords and he winds them together in a whip. Now, Jesus goes and he drives out the livestock and those who are selling them and the cages of pigeons and those who are carrying them. But he is not out of control here. This is not a riot. Now, we know this because there was a Roman garrison right outside the temple in the fortress Antonina. And if it's one thing that Romans had no patience for, it was riots. You start a riot, 
they're going to stop the riot. And they don't care how many heads have to get busted in. But we hear nothing about the Romans. They're not concerned at all. And so while this certainly wasn't orderly, it was not chaotic and a riot. But Jesus needed this whip cord of whip, a whip of cords, excuse me, because, well, have you ever tried to move a big dog from like one part of the room to the other part of the room? I'm not talking about one of these little tiny dogs you could put in your purse. No, I'm talking about a big dog. Now, imagine that that's an ox or a goat that's going to headbutt you or a sheep that's going to bite you. In order to move this livestock, Jesus is going to have to prod them, poke them, strike them, move them along. And you can't imagine that the merchants are just going to say, well, if Jesus doesn't want it, we better get out. They need to be threatened. They need to be told, you have, you have no business here. And so Jesus is very forceful in what he's doing. He's committed to this. He's active. Because they have trivialized worship and used it as an excuse for greed. Jesus won't stand by for that. He dumps over their money buckets. And he pours out all their coins. He overturns their tables. The scene here is obvious. You are not wanted. Get out. Now let me give a word of caution here. You are not Jesus. Your motives and actions are not always pure. So you need to be careful before you say, well, Jesus got angry with people. I'm going to throw my weight around. No. But also think about this. Do your commitments to the truth lead to action? Do you act in accordance with what you believe? Because the truth that we believe leads to action. Jesus shows us that. Well, we've seen what Jesus saw. We've seen what Jesus did. Now let's look at what Jesus meant. After Jesus does this, the Jewish leaders come up and confront him in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now, this is not surprising that they confront Jesus. Perhaps the most surprising thing is that they let Jesus do this in the first place. Right? So the leaders are asking for a sign. What they mean is, by what authority are you doing this? Now, obviously, they had allowed all of these practices to go on. They were relatively new, most Scholars think that they had been instituted by the most recent high priest, Caiaphas, actually coming into the temple grounds. But the Jewish leaders were fine with allowing the temple to become a flea market, with preventing the Gentiles from hearing and worshiping God. What they're concerned about is, so who gave you permission, Jesus? What authority do you have here? And Jesus' response is to refer to his resurrection in verse 19. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The resurrection is Jesus' credentials. Now this is confusing to them because it hasn't happened yet and because they don't believe. They think he's talking about the physical building. And 
Now notice first what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, I will destroy this temple. He says, you destroy this temple. He's not referring to the building. And they think, this took 46 years to build. There's no way we're going to tear it down just to see if you can rebuild it in three. But Jesus is talking about himself, whom they would destroy later. The interesting thing is Jesus had already given them a sign. He had authority. He's God. He just cleansed the temple. There's a sign in technicolor. And yet what they want is to hear about his authority. Jesus did what he did because he had the authority. He is God. And they missed that entirely. They wanted another sign to prove the sign that they already had. Now, this is not dissimilar to the way that sometimes people interact with us when we try to share the gospel. Someone will ask you a question, you answer the question, and then they ask you a question about the question. And then you answer that question, and they ask you a question about the question about the question. The question doesn't matter. They're just trying to hold off the gospel. They're trying to keep you at arm's length. That's what they're trying to do to Jesus here. But you see, Jesus has this authority. He has the ultimate sign of the resurrection. He said later, no one takes my life from me. I give it up. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection. As you hear the words of Jesus, do you know that he is the king? That his commands are not optional? That his call to repent and believe is not something that you can ignore? Jesus calls you right now to come to the cross. To find forgiveness and grace in his life, death, and resurrection. Will you do that? You can't ignore Jesus. You don't get to define Jesus. This sign that, God, that John shows you is proof that Jesus is the king of kings. He is worthy of worship. He is the one to whom you must submit. But what Jesus also meant for them to hear is that the old things are passing away. We saw a picture of that last week when Jesus took the old ceremonial washing jars and he poured into them the wine of the new covenant of joy and gladness. Well, here they're focused on the physical temple and its goings on. The focus of their life had gone off of the Lord. Their worship had become self-centered. What can we get out of it? How can we make a quick buck? How can we get this over with quickly? How can we get in and get out? Their worship had become undervalued. What's the fastest and easiest way to fulfill our duty? But Jesus says, I am the true temple. The temple was the place where God dwelt with his people. The temple was where God revealed himself to man. And the temple was where the Ark of the Covenant was found. On top of it, the mercy seat. 
where mercy and grace were found. That is Jesus. Jesus is the true temple. He came to earth to dwell among people. He is God with us. And He is the one who reveals God to us. We know who God is because God has shown Himself in Jesus. And Jesus is the mercy seat. He's not a picture of it. Not a type of it. Jesus is the one who makes atonement. Who brings mercy. Well, don't try to make Jesus who you want him to be. C.S. Lewis talks about, in his first book, in the Narnian Chronicles, how Aslan, in answering a question, is not a tame lion. He's certainly not tame. But he's good. John tells you Jesus is not tame. He does not exist to bring you comfort and what you want and wish. He is the Lord of all. He will overturn your heart for your good. He will save you and change you and bring about a holy passion for God in you. All you need to do is believe. Jesus' power and authority is a sign to you. A sign that you can trust Him. That He is able. That He is God Himself. Jesus is the Lord of the temple. Let's pray.